If you join me this morning in Psalm 126. Psalm 126. As I sent out a message the other day, decided to delay our return to 1 Corinthians. We'll do that next Sunday morning, God willing. But this morning I want to preach from Psalm 126, a psalm that I spent a lot of time reflecting on in recent weeks. It's a great psalm of encouragement, asking God to do uh, great things again. Join me, we'll read these six verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, other translations say when he um, returned the captivity, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Neheb. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray. Our Father, as we have the privilege this morning to freely read and to study your word, we pause to ask, Holy Spirit, that you would be our teacher, remindful of Jesus' instruction to his disciples, that you, Holy Spirit, would come and would guide your people in truth, that you would come and glorify Jesus Christ. And so we pray today, Holy Spirit, please teach us this passage and show us Christ. Give us joy. Give us gladness in him. And Lord, even though we're Baptists, may we shout for joy. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as many of you know, I had the privilege of growing up in the same local church since I was uh, three years of age. My parents became the members of the First Baptist Church of Milford, Ohio, in the United States. Um, just a few years after they were saved, when I was a little kid. I had the privilege of having the same pastor for the entire years that I was there. He pastored that church for 35 years. When my parents joined that church, the church had an attendance of about 80 to 100 people. And that would grow over the years to about 1,000 weekly. And the church would go through numerous building programs to house the increasing numbers and to house the increasing ministries. I can remember Sunday mornings going to the local primary school where we'd have our Sunday school because there was no room in the building. Begin to buy local uh, properties around the church building to house the many ministries, including a Christian school that was started, as well as a Bible printing ministry called the Bearing Precious Seed Ministry. 
Eventually, our church would buy about 50 acres of land about eight kilometers away and would build a Christian school, would build a church building, a two-winged Sunday school wing, and a massive building where the Word of God would be printed. I can remember the very last Sunday in the original church building before we moved to this 1,500-seat auditorium. I can remember our youth pastor, who is still a member of the church, Don Melton, being asked to pray at the end of the service. At the end of the service, he prayed and thanked the Lord for all the years of his blessing in that one particular location. And I remember his final words, and I was sharing this actually with somebody in Milford just recently. I remember Don praying this, do it again, God, please do it again. And God indeed did it again. That church would continue to grow and preach the gospel and see people saved and see people baptized. It was a joy to be there recently and to see more people baptized into the membership of that church. That church would grow in its Bible printing ministry and to date, over the years, has now published 300 million scriptures and given them away for free around the world in various different languages. And as I was sitting in a church service there, uh, the pastor was preaching from Psalm 126, and afterwards I went home and began to look at Psalm 126 and began to pray, Lord, do it again at, at Brackenhurst Baptist Church. When you think about 51 years in this place, in this ministry of the Brackenhurst Baptist Church, how the Lord has blessed in a glorious way. The other day I ran by 21 Christie Street and thought about that house where this started many 51 years ago. Now the Lord has blessed and saved people and people have become members of the church and the Lord has sent out missionaries, church planters from this church. People have raised their families for Christ through the ministry of this church and I was praying, Lord, do it again. Our best days don't have to just be behind us. God can indeed do it again. That is the theme of Psalm 126. In Psalm 126, the author is writing, Lord, please do it again. I want to share three things from Psalm 126 that I trust will really help us today. I want us to be worshipful as we remember all that God has done through his gospel in our lives and in our church. And I want us to be helped to believe him for greater things. Those three things are we must not be forgetful. We must continue to be faithful, and we will be fruitful. Let's begin in verses 1 to 3. Make sure we're not forgetful. The writer pens these words. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. The question is, what are the great things that he is writing about? This is one of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are from Psalm 121 through Psalm 135. They were Psalms that the Jewish pilgrims would sing as they would go up to Jerusalem for the various feasts. There are 15 of those, and many commentators believe that these psalms were written or at least compiled by King Hezekiah. 
And there's some reasons for that, and I think that Psalm 126 has some internal evidence for, for that. Whatever the particular rescue that the Lord had given to his people, this psalm records the importance of it and the importance of people not forgetting it. If indeed this Psalm 126 was written by Hezekiah, then it would reflect something that happened historically in 2 Kings chapters 36 to 38. And just bear with me for a moment as I fill in the blanks. I ask you to read those chapters. They're long chapters, but they're helpful to understand, I think, what the writer is saying here. There was a time when King Hezekiah was threatened by Sennacherib, the king of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire that ruled the world in the days of Hezekiah would conquer a nation and would expect tribute from that nation, financial tribute. But they would also expect the king to abdicate so that Sennacherib could then put in some puppet rulers to rule the nation. Well, Hezekiah agreed to pay tribute, and I think he did wrong in doing that. He actually took the gold from the temple in order to pay the tribute. But he would not abdicate being king. And so Sennacherib sends an army to surround the city of Jerusalem. There are 185,000 at least soldiers that are surrounding the city. They are threatening to destroy Jerusalem and to kill the king. And so Hezekiah does what anyone who believes in God would do. He prayed. It's wonderful how he takes the letter of threat from Sennacherib. He goes to the temple and he lays it down before the Lord, as it were, and he falls on his face and he says, Lord, look at what they're saying. And he says, Lord, they're threatening us. Please deliver us. He sends also to the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah sends word back. You can relax, Hezekiah. Everything's going to be okay. And that was probably hard to believe. Because I want you to think about this. Can you imagine the United States of America deciding they're going to conquer South Africa? And so they are surrounding us with an army. There are F-16s and stealth flyers interrupting our worship service. There are, the Navy is at the coast of, of Cape Town in Durban. And that seems like an impossible situation. That's pretty much what Jerusalem was facing. But Isaiah gives a word of prophecy, a word of promise that God will deliver them. And God does just that. One night, 185,000 Assyrian soldiers surrounding Jerusalem are struck dead. And Sennacherib later on is forced to retreat. And as he retreats, some years later, actually, he goes into his temple and he is, he is killed by his own sons. God gives an incredible deliverance. And the writer of Psalm 126, if that is indeed the picture, he is writing here, and perhaps and others argue that it's the Babylonian captivity, but whatever the particular historical situation, 
They're saying, do you remember when the Lord turned the captivity? Do you remember when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion? Do you remember when the Lord reversed our misfortunes and our disaster? Do you remember that? Do you remember how glad we were? Do you remember how we shouted with joy? Do you remember the giddy laugh almost of unbelief that look at what God has done? The psalmist wants those who are marching to Jerusalem for the feast to remember the great rescue that God had given to them. He wanted them to remember the great rescue. He wanted them to rejoice. He wanted them to remember the result. As we make our pilgrimage through the world, as we face difficulties, as we face challenges, we too need to be very careful we do not forget our great rescue. Several times when we were in the States recently, people ask us, do you plan to come back and live in America? And we said, that's not even really crossed our minds. We plan to die in South Africa, hopefully old. <laughs> I remember Jill on a couple of occasions overhearing her answering that question. And she's saying, we've been members of a church for 30 years. That's our community. But it's not just that. I believe God is just as present in South Africa, maybe more so than the United States. I believe that our best days are not necessarily behind us. We have a God who has brought us to a great rescue before. He can do it again. But even if God doesn't deliver us politically, even if God doesn't deliver us economically, God has delivered us from our greatest problem. There is no wrath left for me. There is no judgment from God. There is no condemnation. When God saved us, when God, through the Lord Jesus Christ, who went to the cross, having lived a perfectly sinless life, when he went to that cross and experienced God's wrath, that was for me, when he experienced it on my behalf, when he said, it is finished, it was finished. And it was proven by the empty grave three days later. And because of that, I have experienced a great redemption. And whatever other problems I am going to face in my life, none of them match the greatest rescue that God has given to me. Brothers and sisters, we need to remember our great redemption. We need to remember the great rescue that God wrought in our lives. I can still remember the night of the 11th of February, 1980. I don't know how much longer I will remember. But right now, at this stage of my life, I can still remember. And it was as though it was yesterday, and there, where there was gladness, and there was almost giddy laughter at what God had done in my life that there was shouts of joy because God had rescued me from my sin. And when I find myself discouraged and tempted to despair in many several ways, I can remember that great rescue, that great redemption, and I dare not forget it. 
I know when the elders preached in 2 Peter recently, I'm sure they brought this out in 2 Peter chapter 1 when Peter repeatedly says, I know you know this, but I want you to remember. I want you to remember. I want you to remember. Don't forget. Don't forget your great redemption. Don't forget the great rescue because Peter's writing to people who are beleaguered. He's writing to believers who are undergoing threats and persecution and real persecution. Not the persecution of having to wear a mask during COVID, but the persecution of losing your life because you're following Christ. And Peter writes and says, don't forget Christ and his great redemption. That will bring you through. We need to remember our great rescue, the great redemption. I don't know all that Israel remembered, if indeed I'm right, and this was the historical occasion behind Psalm 126, but perhaps they all remembered the Exodus and how God had made a promise that he was going to bring them out of Egypt. And after 400 years, increasingly, decade after decade, century after century, the burden of being enslaved to the Egyptian was felt upon their backs. One day they got the good news that there's going to be a deliverance. And God brings them out and they come to the, to the, to the Red Sea and they've got a wilderness on their right, right and a wilderness on their left and they've got an Egyptian army pursuing on the back and they've got a Red Sea before them and they're wondering what's going to happen to us and yet God splits the Red Sea. They walk through that and then in Exodus 15, you have the Song of Moses where they're singing God's praises, shouts of joy. They're glad, they're excited because God has given them a great rescue. And maybe as Hezekiah was faced by this threatening Sennacherib, he was remembering God's greater rescue earlier. And if God could do that then, then he can do something now. Paul put it this way in Romans 8, 32, that if God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? In other words, he's arguing from the greater to the lesser. That if God takes care of our greatest problem, what are we worried about the lesser ones? Are we worried about the politics? Are we worried about the economy? If God has given us the greatest rescue, can we, can't we trust him for the minor problems? We dare not forget. We not forget, dare not forget the great rescue, the great redemption that God has given to us. God instituted feast so that Israel would not forget the Exodus. He gave a written record that was to be read by the priest to serve as a reminder of their great rescue. The singing of the Psalms was to serve as a musical reminder of God's great deliverance. Fathers were to recount the Exodus story to their families as a great reminder so we would not forget they would not forget their great redemption. Well, God has given to us many means by which we should not forget. And one of those is this gathering of the saints where we preach the gospel week in and week out and are reminded that God is taking care of our greatest problem. There's a sense in which whatever burdens we have brought into this church, whatever domestic problems we have, as painful as those are, and whatever economic challenges we've brought into this place, whatever relational burdens, whatever physical burdens we brought in this place, as real and painful as they are, 
when we gather, we want to have a service that is in such a way we leave saying those problems are here and those problems are still here, but thank God my greatest problem is gone. God has rescued us. He has redeemed us. Nostalgia can be a good thing. I was reflecting with my in-laws recently when we were visiting them about having just gone through my the town, little town that I grew up called Terrace Park and drove by the, the school, drove by the big, big oak tree that's still there where I played with my matchbox cars. I was young once. Nostalgia of playing what they call peewee football. And all those wonderful memories. There's a way where nostalgia can be dishonest. As you think about the past and all the glories of it, you sometimes forget the failures and the pains of that. Allison said the other day, that's the point of nostalgia, is to remember the good things. And that is true. And yet, when we look back on our Christian life, we can also see some failures. We can see some sin failures. And maybe you're here this morning and your failure's been this week. And it's been a major failure and you've come here today not even wanting to come here today. And there's this great burden in the sense of, I failed and I've sinned against God and I'm so far from Him. Can I today encourage you to remember the great rescue that God has given to you? And you can come to Christ today Confess your sins and be cleansed from all unrighteousness and you can have the joy of your salvation restored to you. When David sinned egregiously, he writes in Psalm 51 and he says, Lord, I have sinned and against you only have I sinned. And he says in verse 14, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. And there's no doubt when he finished penning that psalm, there was laughter and there was shouts of joy and there was gladness. Whatever failures we have experienced, we need to remember our great rescue. And with that comes great rejoicing. Great rejoicing as we realize the power of the gospel. A couple of weeks ago, I sent through a prayer request for a Sunday night service that we would indeed as a church appreciate in a greater way the power of the gospel. I want that. Romans 1.16, where Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God and the salvation for everyone who believes. To everyone who believes. And I just was um, struck when I was overseas meditating on something that I need a greater, uh, a, a greater confidence in the power of the gospel. That the gospel can, can save our families. That God can save our friends. That God can save that troublesome a fellow employee or that troublesome employer, God can save them. When I met with my friend who only 44 years of age came to faith in Christ, if you would ask me 42 years ago when I last had a discussion with him, if I believed he'd be saved, it seemed hopeless, but now he's serving God. And I was reminded of the power of the gospel. The gospel is able to change people. You know, God can save people in South Africa. The other day I was walking to the shops and walked by some guys on the curb. And as I looked at them, guys who were certainly terribly in need. And I looked at them and I just thought to myself, those men are made in the image of God. 
And those men can be redeemed just like God has redeemed me. The power of the gospel. We need to believe that. We need to proclaim the gospel. We need to remember what God has done in our lives. We need to remember how God has transformed terrible, dire situation of us facing God's wrath, of us facing an eternity without God, facing that in God delivering us and therefore being encouraged that he can deliver others. I don't, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. And I don't know what the future holds for South Africa. But I do believe this, that God can send a mighty awakening. And by the way, let's be careful why we want that. Right? The danger is we want a great awakening because we want the economy to be better. We want the political landscape to be better. Our greatest desire should be an awakening so that God can be glorified amongst us. It's interesting how the writer says here that when the Lord delivered them in verse 2, then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The nation saw God doing a great work in, in the lives of his people And that brought glory to God. God can do a great awakening. God can turn a nation around. I love my favorite, one of my favorite biographies is that of John Payton, the missionary to the New Hebrides, now Vanita. And the New Hebrides was a land that was, that was um, covered in cannibals. John Payton goes there and there's two major islands there. And he spends years and years proclaiming the gospel. And by the time he died, the majority of the people living on those two islands were believers. That's amazing because of the power of the gospel. We need a renewed, perhaps, confidence in the power of the gospel. And that gives us hope for the present and hope for the future. So we cannot be forgetful. Remember what God has done in our life. He can do in the lives of others. What God has done in our neighbors, he can do in the lives of other neighbors. What God has done in the New Hebrides, God can do in our own nation. The power of the gospel to change lives. You might be sitting here today and thinking, my husband's never going to come to faith in Christ. Can I encourage you that dead is dead? A five-year-old is spiritually dead, and a 50-year-old who's not saved is spiritually dead. It doesn't take any more resurrection power to save the 50-year-old than the five-year-old. You might be thinking, my children, are they ever going to get saved? Can I encourage you like Hezekiah? Lay out before the Lord. Here's my burden. Here's my challenge. Please save my family. We need not be forgetful. Secondly, we need to be faithful. He says here, in the second half of the psalm, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was a dry area that during the, kind of like Johannesburg during our winter, it's very, very dry normally. It's been a strange winter. Shame, you experienced that. I didn't. The Negev was, was dry, but... And there were the little creeks, but when the rains would come, torrential floods, it would turn into a namaquiland. 
and it would, it would, it would, it would bloom and plant life. He's saying, Lord, right now it's dry. You've given us a great deliverance in the past. Well, Lord, right now we need another deliverance. We need another rescue. We're facing a time of dryness, some kind of a challenge. But there's this wonderful word of promise. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bring his sheaves with him. You say, where do you see faithfulness there? Let me explain. In 2 Kings chapter 38, Isaiah sends a message back to Hezekiah. And he says that, don't worry, daughter of Jerusalem. God is going to destroy Sennacherib. Just as the Assyrians would literally put hooks in the nose of the enemy that they've captured and haul them back to um, Nineveh. I'm going to do the same thing with Sennacherib and his armies. They're going to be defeated. And then he says, as a sign of this, he says, I want you to encourage the people that this year they will eat of the fruit of the vine and the, and the, and the plants that are there. But because you're surrounded by the enemies, you're not going to be able to plant for the next year. But the next year I will feed you by the plant life that is left from this harvest. Then he says, in the third year, you will then sow your seed. It will sprout up and you will have a harvest. Now, let me kind of put this all together because when the writer speaks about sowing in tears and, and, and weeping as they're bearing the seed for sowing, you have to ask the question, why would you be crying? Peter, I saw Peter today. Peter's a farmer. Do you ever cry when you sow the corn? No. So why would a farmer be crying? Well, think about this. If you've gone two years without planting, your cupboards are pretty empty. Your barns are pretty empty. And so now in the third year, whatever grain you have left, instead of grinding it up for meal, for meals, you're now taking that and you're sowing it into the ground. And with each handful that you're throwing out, it's as it were you're literally taking food out of the mouth of your family. But you do that because God said, I will take care of you. You do it because you have faith in the promise of God. And so you sow that seed. And you do it weeping and crying because sometimes the faith life is painful. It's painful to keep loving your husband when he mistreats you. It's painful to keep giving when the finances are tight. It's faithful to keep praying and believing when your children are still rejecting the gospel. It's painful to keep believing that Jesus cares 
when your body is racked with chronic pain. It is painful to keep ministering and preaching the gospel when you see such little fruit. It is painful when you're sending missionaries to lands where their lives are under threat. But we do that because we have promises from God, and so we do it. If I'm right about the historic background of Psalm 126, and I think I am, this is just a wonderful, wonderful picture of the faith life. We remember what God has done in the past. And so in the present, even though things look so hopeless, we say, you know what? God has commanded us. God has commanded us in what seems to be a spiritually dry land to keep preaching the gospel. God has commanded us to continue to plant churches and to make disciples, even though we don't see immediate fruit. God commands us, and we keep obeying him to pray and to give and to send and to go because God has given to us promises. In the front of your building is that front of your bulletin is front of your bulletin is a great quote by William Carey. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. And I know I've said this a hundred times at least in the years that I've used the illustration, but I must say it again. I read the biography of William Carey by his grandson, Samuel Pierce Carey. And he said, that saying was deliberate. He said, my grandfather deliberately did not say, attempt great things for God and therefore expect great things. He said, because that would be presumptuous. We don't decide what to attempt. My grandfather said, expect great things that God has commanded and therefore attempt great things. We need to, believe, we need to understand that God has told us to make disciples he expects us to do that, and therefore we need to attempt that and trust him that he's going to bring forth fruit. Persevere. Persevere in a situation that is difficult. In this day and age, it seems we're having more and more people who are immigrating from South Africa, and this is not an anti-immigration message. I want to just make that very clear. God's will for Lives, it's like we saw last week in John 21. What would this man do? That's none of my business. But let's be honest. Most of us in this room could not emigrate anywhere. We're stuck. Right? Right? Most of us. We're here. So how do we face the challenges? How do we face the difficulties? I'll tell you what we do going forth sometimes with weeping and sometimes with tears. We keep preaching the gospel and we keep making disciples and we keep raising a godly seed and we keep loving our neighbors and we keep planting churches. And as God allows us, we keep sending missionaries. We, we keep praying. We keep trusting him, knowing that in faith, we honor him. We don't know the result, but he does. I love the, the book. I never read it, but I love the title by Irma Bombeck. She said, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. 
We can look around at somebody else's family and say it's greener there. Or somebody's health and say it's greener there. Or somebody's finances and their job and say it's greener there. I'll be honest, I, I struggle with that. Most of my friends are multimillionaires from, from, that I grew up with. And you see all that, and it looks, the grass looks so much greener. But where has God placed us? We have the same God. We have the same promises. Sow those promises. Believe those promises. And that brings us to the last point. We will be fruitful. He says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Just as you did in an earlier day with Sennacherib. It seemed hopeless. Would you do it again? Because things are dry. We're going to sow in tears. And we're going to weep bearing the precious seed. But he also says this. We're going to reap with shouts of joy. Verse 5. In verse 6, we're going to come home with shouts of joy. This is not some prosperity gospel sermon. I have no idea if God is going to heal you from your chronic illness. When I pray through the church directory every week, I'm always praying for those like when I come across their names. And I know they're chronically ill, and I pray for them. And I pray, God, be merciful to them. And God, if it's your will, heal them. But if not, give them grace to persevere. I don't know that God's going to deliver you from some economic hardship. The Bible doesn't teach that if you follow the Lord, that everything just works out in your life. But it does teach this, that when we trust God, we trust God by obeying God. When we do that, then our relationship with Him grows and our lives are marked by joy. And you cannot put a price tag on that. You cannot put a price tag on the contentment and on joy in the Lord. As we face difficulties, as we face chaos in our country, as we face personally those who offend us, we need to be committed to keep doing what is right. And we'll bring forth shouts of joy. As I prayed, I didn't mean to pray that way, but even as Baptists. In fact, when I prayed that and you all laughed, I thought, that's wonderful. There's laughter. Because we serve a great God. And we can serve Him. So can I close with these applications? We can expect God to answer biblical prayers. So keep praying. We can expect God to save souls. So keep on preaching. We can expect God to raise the dead, so keep on running the race amid your bereavement and your chronic illness. The resurrection is going to, clear, going to cure all of our problems. We can expect God to be our fulfillment, so keep on in your pursuit of Him. We can expect God to build His church, so keep on serving, keep on planting. We can expect God to exalt His name among the nations, so keep on sending. We can expect God to save households, so keep on discipling your children. We can expect God to meet our needs, so keep on giving. We can expect God to provide for our families, to provide for our church, to rule. We expect God to rule our nation, so stop fearing. We can expect God to bring His kingdom to completion, 
So keep making disciples and stop being freaked out by social media and feature films. Amen? I have preached this message with an agenda. And my agenda is to encourage our church to trust God with biblically informed faith that God can restore our fortunes. He can turn again our captivity. He can do wonderful things again in our church, in our lives, in our families, in our nation. So therefore, let's practice a faith that perseveres as it prays, God, please do it again. Let's pray. Oh, dear God, thank you for saving us from our sins. Thank you that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And as your children, we pray that you'd help us to often reflect on the greatest problem that you have brought us through, that you have delivered us from. There's a promise that the minor problems, you're ruling over those as well. We thank you for all the past blessings upon this church for 51 years. We ask you, God, please do it again. Lord, would you please save people again? Save people in this room today who have come here outside of Christ, but have seen that they're sinners before a holy God and they need a Savior. Bring them to faith and repentance today in Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name for his sake, our King of Kings. Amen.